tuning in online at all of the Ports Live locations. We are kicking off a brand new series tonight that we are so excited about and praying God uses to address a really big need in this era, and that is on mental health and anxiety. And so for the next handful of weeks, we're gonna walk through what God's word has to say. But let me start with a story that'll give us some tracks for where we're going. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at College Station at a ministry called Breakaway, which is an amazing ministry. And I had committed to speak, and that's on a Tuesday night at 9 p.m., three and a half hours away, if you're not from Texas. And the problem was I had also committed to speak the next morning in Dallas, Texas at 8.30 a.m. Now, I realized this and began assuming, oh, I'll just drive back late after Breakaway gets done at like midnight. And then I did the math and realized I wouldn't get to bed till 3.30 or 4. Now, I don't know about you. There's people that can run without sleep. I'm not one of those people. I like a good seven, eight hours a night. And if I get any less than that, if I'm going to speak in front of crowds, it's hard for me to put sentences together. And so I am seeing just, oh, this is not a good plan. And so I am running through, should I cancel one of them? What should I do? And then it hits me. A friend of mine, a couple friends of mine, had recently started a private plane business where they chartered out private flights. And this is not really my world, not really my thing, but I picked up the phone, you know, shoot your shot. And I was like, hey, if I was gonna use that plane, what would it cost or how much would it charge? And, and I actually knew the pilot too. And he said, if you cover the price of jet fuel, you can use it. And so I got some of my friends together and my community and they joined and we just divided and conquered or divided the cost. And so, man, everything problem solved. We would fly in that night and then fly back out. Like we were, you know, rock stars in Coldplay or something. And the day came, got to the airport, got on the plane, everything was going fine, and then we took off. And I quickly realized a few things that I hadn't anticipated. This was not Air Force One by any means. There was a reason why he was like, just cover the fuel. It was like a plane from the late 70s or the 80s. It was tiny, it was cramped. And that becomes really important, the size or a very small two propeller plane because it was also dense fog and storming outside. And so I couldn't see anything around me. You're looking outside of the passenger window and it storms everywhere. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, I also knew the pilot. Now, here's why that's a problem you probably have never thought about. There are certain professions that when they interact with your life, ignorance really is bliss. If you're having heart surgery, you don't want to know, you know, the heart surgeon was your fraternity buddy, Frank the Tank, who barely graduated. <laughs> you want to assume he graduated, you know, magna cum laude and was, you know, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize last year. And the pilot is also one of those situations where Mark was his name and he's, he's awesome, but he's also, he's kind of a little crazy. And he would always joke about like, man, I don't know what I'm doing up here. The first time flying and you're like, okay, it's not a good joke, man. There's a lot of storms outside. And, uh, and he, on top of all of that, he had just recently left ministry to go and help run this plane. So I'm like, bro, you've been doing this like an hour. And he had nine fingers, story for another time. But in the moment, you're like, oh man, there's at least 10 buttons up there, I know, on this plane. <laughs> and so it's storming and I can feel every up and down as we're flying here and I'm with these guys. And I'm like, oh man, this is, this is, this is how I go out. I'm gonna die at the hands of nine finger mark and my kids, you just run to worst case scenario when anxiety hits and I'm walking through like, who's gonna teach my son how to throw the ball? Who's gonna walk my you know, daughter down the aisle? And just all of those thoughts internally that you know, people around you may not even realize, but they're just, where 
anxiety has taken over. Now, irony of ironies, I was flying to College Station to teach on anxiety. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a total hypocrite. I'm going to die in this plane. But it was one of those moments when anxiety just grabs you, strikes. And what do you do in those moments? This is a question that is increasingly important because anxiety, when it strikes in that moment, you and I have a choice, not over whether we're going to have anxious thoughts or feelings, but what we do with those. And as a society, we are not great when it comes to coping with anxiety, in part because of the enormous rates at which it is impacting so much in so many of our lives. And COVID didn't help that. In fact, recent studies from the CDC have shown that 63% of young people, ages that's between 18 and 30, are suffering from significant symptoms of anxiety or depression. Nearly a quarter of respondents reported that they had started or increased the abuse of substances, including alcohol, marijuana, prescription drugs, to cope with their anxiety. In June 2020, CDC released data that suggests one in four young adults had considered suicide. Here's a slide that shows the incredible growth that happened from 2019 and the rates of adults reported with symptoms of anxiety disorder and the impact COVID has had. It's just exploded. America was by far the most anxious nation on the planet before a pandemic, and it hasn't gotten any worse. And in particular, it's only gotten worse among young adults. Here's the age breakdown of people that have reported symptoms of anxiety disorders. The largest two buckets being 18 to 24, and we can safely assume the 25 to 49 is likely more than 25 to 35 in there. And so anxiety is not just a problem, it's a problem that's getting increasingly worse. And young adulthood is a time in life where there is so much change happening, it makes all the sense in the world that you would be anxious. What do I mean? Well, prior to this stage in life, everything was pretty clearly mapped out for you, if you think about it. Like remember you, you at first grade, and the tracks were laid out. Where do you go after first? Second grade. Where do you go after that? Third. Where do you go after middle school? High school. There's this clear path and track. Where do you go after high school? Freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. And then it's like the tracks run out and ah, free fall, as there isn't a clear, what is the next step? And a lot of people don't have wise people in their life to help them know, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I in the right job? Am I dating the person that I'm supposed to marry? How am I going to afford to pay off my student loans? And it becomes this free fall that is a breeding ground for anxiety. It makes all the sense in the world, which is why this is one of the most anxious times or anxious time periods in life. And on top of all of that, just to validate a little bit more, the average age of marriage in the last 20 or 30 years has gone from around the age of 24 and 23 to 30 and 29, which means most of us are walking through the most anxious time in our life all alone, which further contributes to anxiety. And so we're doing this series because we wanna help address such a huge issue. And candidly, I think that the church has done a really poor job at handling this subject, and here's what I mean. In Intentionally or unintentionally, a lot of people have communicated that, you know, what the Bible says and what Christians believe is that when it comes to anxiety, you should just stop. If you were to ask the average Christian, hey, what do you think the Bible teaches about it? They have either been misinformed 
or are uninformed what the Bible actually teaches. So they assume it's just like, hey, just stop or have more faith, which doesn't help. In other words, if saying, hey, stop it, actually worked, you would have just stopped. It's not helpful. It's like telling someone who can't fall asleep or struggling to fall asleep, hey, just fall asleep. And you're like, oh, thanks for the advice. (laughs) And the same is true with anxiety. And tragically, that idea of the Bible just saying, hey, just stop or just pray, fails so largely to communicate what the Bible actually teaches. And so I want to walk through and help connect the dots on some of what the Bible teaches as it relates to fighting anxiety, because here's what's true. For Christians, I'm talking to Christians, our first line of defense when it comes to battling anxiety, worry, fear, is always God's word. That doesn't mean that things like counseling or medication or things outside of that, there's no place for it. Those are wonderful fields, incredible. My wife is a licensed counselor. I have personally benefited deeply from counseling. But for Christians, it does mean anything in addition to God's word is a supplement, not a replacement. The Bible is our first line of defense. And I think the church has not taught what the Bible actually teaches, which means has not given the first line of defense to followers of Christ. So that is the passion around this series and around this book, because God's word is so much more practical and helpful than maybe you have ever realized. So tonight we're going to walk through just one of the teachings given 2,000 years ago that is so incredibly brilliant, given by the Son of God when he walked on this planet talking to a group of people who turns out were struggling with anxiety. It's been around a long time, and Jesus brings up some principles and truths that are so relevant to how we can experience increasing freedom and why everyone in the world is freaking out, but why we don't need to. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can flip open. These may be verses. If you grew up in church, you've heard before and may have never actually heard taught in line with what they're saying. And we're gonna look at five truths Jesus gives us. But before we go there, I wanna define anxiety biblically. Because one of the challenges with this topic is people have many associations with words like anxiety, worry, fear, and then you throw in anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so how do you group and what does the Bible have to say about all those? All of those are subjects that we're going to maybe do a views from the porch on or touch at another time. Tonight, I want to focus specifically on what the Bible says about anxiety, not excluding those other things, but I just want to hone in on what the Bible describes and the terms specifically that it uses when it describes anxiety. Because even what I'm about to explain will enlighten maybe some of you to go, oh, I didn't realize that. The word the Bible uses when it says, do not be anxious. Philippians chapter four, when it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. The same word that is used there is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter six. It's used in 1 Peter chapter five, used in Luke chapter 12. It's a Greek word, merim now. Now the New Testament is written in Greek. This is a I have to be a little heady, try to make it as clear as possible. New Testament written in Greek, and the word that was translated for do not be anxious is not Paul saying, never have an anxious thought. The word merim now is synonymous with meditation. So Paul is not saying, hey, don't ever have an anxious thought. That's impossible. He's saying you can choose not to meditate on fearful, anxious thoughts. That is possible. So his definition is meditating on fearful and anxious thoughts. 
Which who would disagree with that? I've been doing this a long time. I've never heard the story of somebody coming up saying, you know what changed my life for the better? I mean, things were off the rails. And I decided every morning I'm going to wake up and meditate on everything I'm afraid of. Everything possibly that could go wrong that day, I'm just going to rehearse in my mind and an asteroid could destroy the planet and there could be another pandemic. And that made my life better. Nobody would disagree with that or nobody would say that it's true. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what the Bible teaches. You can choose not to meditate on fearful and anxious thoughts. So as we walk through in this series, that's the definition the Bible has. So Matthew chapter six, we're gonna look at these five things that Jesus lays out for us. Verse 25, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon he ever preached, he says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So he brings up what they were anxious about. And that day, there was no refrigeration. Chick-fil-A was not open on Sunday. It wasn't open any day. They didn't have the ability to store. And so being anxious over, are we going to have enough food to make it through the end of the season, was a real thing. To us, he would say, whatever you're anxious about, it would still apply. Don't be anxious about whether you'll be single for forever. Don't be anxious about whether or not Instagram will come back online. Don't be anxious... <laughs> about whether somebody is going to ding your new car out in the parking lot. Not saying it doesn't matter. Not saying it doesn't important. He's inviting us to a life where you are not marked by dwelling on fearful and anxious thoughts. And then he asked a question that I think is so profound. Isn't life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Now let me give you the point. I'll tell you why this is so brilliant, like Jedi Jesus move here. The first idea that I want to highlight from the text is to track down your anxiety. Stay with me. Jesus just asked, is all that life is about food? And all that, you know, like a body and your life is all about food and clothing? Is that the epitome of all life is equal to? Why do you think Jesus would ask that question? What do you think about it? Well, he's God, so we can assume he's not actually asking because he doesn't know the answer. In asking that question, his audience would have been forced to go, yes, life is more than food. In other words, if we knew we had enough food to make it for the rest of our life, would that be the epitome of life? No, life is, there's so much more than that. I mean, food is important, though. Yeah, but is life equal food? No, of course not. To us, he would say, is life not more than having a good-paying job? Is life not more than being married? Which, if you get married, you will discover it is a lot more than just being married. Whatever you would be worried about, he would say, isn't life more than that? And in doing so, he forces his audience, just like he would with us, to put into a bigger perspective the object of the worries. Because they don't know, of course life is more than just food. And he does what counselors still do today in asking questions to help them more clearly see what they're anxious about. If life is about way more than just having enough food, why would you give so much of your life to being anxious about it? Counselors, like I said, today will still do the same thing. If you go see him, this is about to be $150 an hour right now for free for you people. And you were anxious about your roommate is getting married and you're not sure who's gonna live with you whenever they move out. You're anxious over, man, I don't know anybody to look for a roommate and I'm anxious about that. And you were sharing this with the counselor. They would do what Jesus did, ask questions to try to deflate some of that power and go, well, 
What happens if you can't find somebody to live with you after they move out? You go, well, I, I wouldn't be able to afford rent. I'd have to move out. What happens if you have to move out? Well, I'd have to move back in with my parents. What happens if you have to move back in with your parents? I would feel like uh, just a failure and I'd be embarrassed about what other people think because I'm living with my mom and you know, she's changed totally my room and that would be uncomfortable. Oh, great, okay, you're anxious about what other people think. You think you're anxious just about finding a roommate and when you drill down and track down your anxiety, you're really anxious about what other people think. Now, does that make the problem go away? No, but it is the first step. In order to fight your anxiety, you've got to face what are you actually anxious about? Let me give you some advice that may seem very unconventional, but is a reflection of exactly what Jesus is doing by helping them more see, clearly see their anxiety. Anxiety comes in the form often of asking a, a specific question. What if? It feeds off of what if. What if I don't ever get a promotion? What if my mom's cancer treatment doesn't work? What if I am single for forever? What if I did leave my wallet out in the lobby? What if? And it leaves you there and asks that question, but we never answer the question. We just hang in that, oh my gosh, that would be, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I want to encourage you, answer the question. Is that going to make it go away? No, I'm, we're going to get to the next step, but track down your anxiety. What if I'm single for forever? What if? Then what? What if, if I am single, or what if the relationship doesn't work out? In other words, I'm suggesting an equation to begin to apply. And the third part of the equation I'm going to give in a second, but what if? What if the relationship you're in doesn't work out? Answer it. Whatever you're anxious about, answer it. What if it doesn't work out? Then I would either marry someone else or maybe not get married. What if you don't get married? Then I would be single for forever. What if the cancer treatment doesn't work? Then my mom may pass away. And that really sucks. And that's true. But anxiety feeds off of ignorance and not being willing to face those fears and look them in the eye and see them for what they are. Because when do, we do that, we're able to deflate the power by applying what Jesus is about to say next. But the equation is, what if? Then I would. It could be something really small. What if your car breaks down and you can't afford to get it fixed? Then I would have to figure out another mode of transportation. It's silly or maybe even simple as that seems, so few people actually track down and chase down their anxiety. And so they hang in this fog of fear rather than isolating and identifying this is exactly what I'm afraid of and facing it, which is the first step in order to change it. And Jesus brilliantly points out, man, you, you think life, life you know in your heart, you understand life is a, so much more than that. Trying to deflate the power of their worries. Because inside of that fog, the anxiety, whenever we don't pinpoint it and isolate it, it's so much bigger than it really is, or we just kind of loom and never get to the bottom of it. It's not just similar to this, or it's similar to this. There's a study I read that said that a single glass of water is responsible for seven blocks in a city wide of 100 feet tall fog. If you go to New York and you see fog out in the day, a single glass of water gets expanded and stretched 
and is responsible and can make seven city blocks 100 feet deep. In a similar way, this is what anxiety does inside of our minds unless we pinpoint it and isolate it and look at it directly. It just stretches it and stretches it and stretches it and that fog of fear gets as big as it can. And part of the way that you see it, not as a huge fog, but as a glass of water, which doesn't make it go away, it's still there. It just deflates the power is by tracking down your anxiety. And then Jesus gives us the most important part of that equation. What if, you're gonna answer it, then I would, and he goes to the most important thing to focus on, but God will. What if, then I would, but God will. Here's where he goes next. Jesus says this, look at the birds of the air. So they're outside, birds fly over. Jesus said, check out those birds. Neither, they neither sow nor reap, basically plant and harvest crops, to gather into barns, and yet God feeds them. Are you not more valuable than a bird? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. So he points to some flowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, it's punchline, do not be anxious, saying, what should we eat or what should we drink? Or what should we wear? For the Gentiles, people who do not know God, your translation may say pagan, seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus said, remember, God has promised to provide. The second idea we see from the text, tracked on your anxiety, remember God's promises. This is huge as it relates to that equation. What if? And answer that question. Then I would, but God will. What if, I use my own life, I could find myself meditating on what if my wife gets cancer and she dies and I'm left to raise three kids all by myself. What if? Then I would be so heartbroken. What if my wife died? Then I would walk through probably the most painful season I'll ever walk through then I would have to figure out raising children and childcare and all of that alone. But God has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. He will get me through it and he is near to the brokenhearted. What if you lose your job? Then you may have to make some changes in how you spend. Maybe just even for a season while you look and find another job. But God has promised he will provide for you. He is enough and he is a sustainer. Not to provide for all of your wants, but promised I will provide for all of your needs. And Jesus brilliantly brings them back. He says, Man, you're acting like people who don't have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father who provides for birds and lilies and does all of this. And you don't think he'll provide for you? And he brilliantly points out, remember what God has promised. So what if, what if you're single for the rest of your life? Stare it down, man. You will find freedom, but only through staring it down and saying, then I would be sad. And I would feel lonely, but God has promised I'm never alone. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He is nearer to me than the breath I breathe. 
and he will sustain me. What if? Then I would, but God will. Here's some of the promises that God has given us as it relates to promises that no matter what we walk through, if that old girlfriend or boyfriend, what if they start dating someone else? Then I would be really sad. And I would be really tempted to go stalk them on Instagram. But God has another story that he's writing. And if they're not a part of that future in a spouse way with me, or they're not going to be a part of my life, God has promised he will work all things together for good. And as you begin to rehearse this, you will begin to experience peace because there's no magic words that you can say that can prevent a boyfriend from dating somebody else, a mom from getting cancer. But we can cling to God will. God has promised. And when we do, peace begins to be experienced because peace is beginning to be embraced. Some of the promises that God has given us that no matter what we walk through, what if, then I would, but God will be my provider. Hebrews chapter 13. But God will still be the cornerstone of my life. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. I think these are up on the screen. That God will still protect me. Psalm 32, verse 7. That no matter what I walk through, God will restore my joy as dark as the season I'm in right now, he has promised. He is a joy restorer. No matter what I walk through, God has promised. He offers peace beyond understanding. That God has promised that the trial I'm facing, he will use to make me wiser and stronger in my faith as a result of the trial. James chapter one. That God has promised he will help me in my time of need. Hebrews chapter four. That God has promised to draw near to me. And he draws near to those who are brokenhearted. What if it happens? Then I would, but God will. God has promised to work all things together for good. Jesus tells them what he would tell you. Remember who your heavenly father is. He has promised to provide for your needs. He can be trusted. John Owen was an old Puritan who had a saying that he said, it is irrational for a Christian to be anxious because a Christian has said, God, I trust you with all of eternity. And being anxious is saying, God, I trust you with all of eternity, just not with Thursday. Now that doesn't mean that it's not understandable or it's not an experience. It just is not a rational, logical thing because we as believers know God has promised he will provide for your needs. He clearly and most clearly did so on the cross, dying for you, giving his life to provide the ultimate payment for you to spend eternity with God, that he has gone to such great lengths to show I will provide for your needs and I've already done so for your greatest need by dying in your place. As it's been well said, Christians do not know what tomorrow holds. We're the only ones who know who holds tomorrow. Christians, we don't always know what tomorrow's gonna hold, but you are the only people on the planet who know the God who holds tomorrow in his hands. I was reading this week and this verse came alive like, honestly, I've never thought about before. There's a verse in Isaiah, it's an Old Testament prophet. Chapter 26, verse three. And it's a verse that I've always read and thought like, that is, oh man, I, that is so far from me. And he says, you keep in perfect peace. You keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, focused, fixed on you because he trusts you. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. Hey, remember who your God is. Keep your mind. 
You have a heavenly father who's promised to provide. God will come through. He will sustain. Keep your mind focused there. And you'll experience peace. Focusing on him. Who he is, what he's promised. And you'll experience peace. What if? Then I would. But my God will. Jesus asked another question, the third idea. So you have tracked down your anxiety. Remember God's promises. And then he says this. Can any of you... By worrying, add a single hour to your life. Now, I think he's messing with them in this question, but that's me. Maybe that's just how I read the Bible, where he's asking, hey, let me just take a side note, pause here. While we're on the subject, let's just all agree. Does worrying add anything beneficial to your life? To which we would all agree, no. I mean, you may have never thought about it before, but you worrying about whether or not you're going to be single for forever does nothing to remove whether or not you're actually going to be single for forever. If anything, it may lower or increase the chances because you're a little bitter to be around. And if you worry about whether or not you're going to have enough money in the bank account to, I'm kidding, it was a joke, don't send me the email. If you worry about whether or not you're going to have enough money in the bank account to pay rent, does that do anything beneficial to actually increase the amount in your bank account to pay rent? No. And Jesus is pretty brilliant. They go, let's just all get on the same page here. And understand, I think we can all agree, worrying is useless. Understand, worry is useless. It's the third idea that we see from the text, that he's saying it doesn't add. Let's at least all agree it does nothing beneficial inside of our life. In fact, studies have shown by the Mayo Clinic, Charles Mayo said, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. Though I have never known a man who died of overwork, I've known a lot who died of worry. And if anything, science would say takes off of your life. And Jesus would say, man, let's at least agree. It is not a useful thing. I think one of the, even the flaws in the ways that we think about anxiety and worry and the way we express it is flawed. What do I mean? You'll even use terms that are like, man, I just, you know, I struggle with control or, you know, have anxiety and I just, you know, I struggle with control. I think that is a statement or sentence that we should take out of our repertoire, if you will. Why do I say that? Because you don't struggle with control. You've never had control. That's like saying, I struggle with x-ray vision. It's like, no, it, you have never had x-ray vision and you never will have x-ray vision. You have never had control and you never will have control. Because control is something that only God has. And Jesus is brilliantly just saying, hey, let's just all agree, let's get on the same page, understand worry is useless. And then he gives a really practical tip. Because that one doesn't feel as practical, at least we can all agree. But what do I do? He'd say, remember what God has promised. She tracked down your anxiety. And then brilliantly he goes into another practical tip. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This, I think, is one of the most misunderstood verses as it relates to anxiety. What Jesus is saying is the fourth idea from the text, which is seek God's kingdom and surrender yours. Place as highest priority God's kingdom. When it comes to who sits on the throne of your life and whose agenda comes first, let there be no competition. It is God's. And embrace God's kingdom or prioritize the same word first in your life. God's agenda, God's will, God's reign for you. Now, most people read this verse and they think Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry. 
go on a mission trip. Don't worry, read your Bible. Don't worry, tithe. None of us are bad things. They just way oversimplify and miss the power of this verse. What Jesus is saying, I want you to place as first in your life God's agenda, God's kingdom. It's another way, it's the same word for reign or agenda or kingdom above your own, above anyone else's. Now, why is that brilliant? Because you know what all of my worries and all of your worries have in common? At the center, they're all about your kingdom. Now, you would never put it that way because that's weird and we don't really have kingdoms, but they're all about your wants and your desires, which is your agenda, your kingdom. In other words, I'd never find myself laying awake at night worried, I mean emotionally anxious and overwhelmed by like God's agenda and God's desires for the world. I've never been unable to fall asleep over, God, there's just so many people in China and I don't know if you have what it takes to save all of them or what are we going to do? No. But that's God's agenda and God's kingdom. I worry about my kingdom, my agenda, my wants, my car, my kids, my life, my house, just like you do. At the epicenter of all of those things, it's God's kingdom. And he's saying, if you will begin to prioritize and place as first importance in your life and in your heart, God's agenda, even when it contradicts yours, you will begin to experience peace. The idea of a kingdom is, is kind, of bent, bent or kind of built on the idea of me not getting what I want. That's ultimately why I worry. Me not getting or things not going how I want them to go. Which is so funny because as every person in this room has realized, life is not always going to go the way you want it to go. And we don't always get the things that we want. In other words, it's not possible. There's gonna come times where God's will or whatever happens in my life is not the things that I want. That's not, it's not possible to get everything that I want all the time. And so having everything according to my agenda or my kingdom is not possible. But peace is. In other words, you can live life and have not everything go always the way that you want it to and have anxiety. Or you can not have everything you want and have peace. Having everything you want is not possible. Peace is. And Jesus is saying, put on the throne God's agenda. God's revealed will. Excuse me. For your life. Now, what does that mean? There's two ways we know the will of God in Scripture. There's the Bible, which is his revealed will, basically the commands, instructions that he gives. And then there's the unrevealed will of God. What is that? That is God is sovereignly over everything. And so everything that happens in my life is something that has come through his hands. He is over. And whenever life begins to go, not how I wanted it to go, in other words, whenever God's will unfolds in front of me in my life in a way that I didn't want it to be, I can either choose to say, God, your kingdom, your will comes before mine, I trust you. Or I can be anxious, but it won't thwart the will of God. But I can choose, God, when those times happen, I choose to trust you. Your kingdom comes before my kingdom. Your will comes before my will. He brings us back so to something he said 20 verses earlier. Like, I mean, in the same chapter. I mean, like, this is like 35 seconds later in the sermon, where in chapter 6, verse 9, remember, we were on verse 33, he brings up the same words, kingdom, 
and will. And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which is just holy or amazing is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your kingdom comes before my kingdom. And he said, this is how you should pray. You should go to God and say, God, your will comes before my will. I want your agenda before my agenda. And then 18 verses later, it says, prioritize God's kingdom, God's agenda, even when it contradicts yours. And when you do, you'll experience peace. Or you can not embrace God's agenda and experience panic, but it's not going to change the circumstances around you. What does this look like? It looks like financially, whenever you don't get the job, you go, God, you pull your heart out. You say, God, you know, desperately, I need a job. But if that wasn't the career, or that wasn't the one that you wanted me to have, I don't know what I'm going to do. Would you please provide a, a career, a job, a position? And if this isn't your will, I, I trust you. God, you, you know how desperately I wanted this relationship to work. And I, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to date again after this person. I don't know if it, it is going to work. Maybe we're about to break up. And God, I, I really wanted this to work. But if that's not your will, I trust you that I'm going to embrace his kingdom. I'm going to seek his kingdom first, surrender mine. And when it contradicts, I'm going to embrace his, and I will experience peace. He models this himself, Jesus talking about, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, he does this exact thing when he prays. And he goes to God hours before he's going to be crucified. And look at what he prays, Mark chapter 14. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. In other words, translation, God, I don't want to die on a cross and be separated from you. Is there another way? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Your kingdom comes before mine. Your will comes before mine. And I can either choose to embrace that when life doesn't go the way that I want and say, God, this is not what I would have. The cancer treatment isn't working. And if something doesn't change, I'm worried we may not have much time left. So will you please allow it to work? But if that's not your will, I trust you. I'm trying to trust you. Your kingdom comes before mine. Will you help me? And when you do, you will begin to experience peace. Finally, he gives us the final solution. It's really important as it relates to anxiety. He says this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love it. Jesus just said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have enough trouble of its own. you got enough problems today. Focus on that. The final idea from this text is take one day at a time. Anxiety is one of those things that... Sometimes preachers or sometimes just people in general can communicate, hey, if you will do enough of these steps, anxiety, you'll never have it again for the rest of your life. You'll experience peace. You'll never worry, which is just not true. Jesus says, hey, you take every day, you focus just on today, and the daily battle of anxiety is one that will be present for the rest of your life, and it's going to be, anxiety is going to be present in our world and fear and worry for the rest of your life but its control over your peace and over you doesn't have 
to be present for the rest of your life. But it is daily choosing to apply God's word that I'm going to choose to trust you in a moment-by-moment basis in a world where the current is going to try to push you in the direction of anxiety and of worry and of peace. And if you're not intentional, you're going to be moved in that direction. It's like this. My wife and I, we love going to the beach. And so we'll go to the beach, and from time to time, we'll go with family or go with, uh, you know, extended family. And a couple years ago, we were at the beach with extended family. And while we were there, I was out throwing Frisbee in the water with one of my brothers. And we're out there in front of our resort and throwing it around maybe 45 minutes. And I look up, and we are three resorts down from where we were staying. What had happened? Well, we didn't ever walk down that way. We just did what happens if you've been in the ocean before it. The current just pushes you. The tide and the water just moved you without ever intending to or ever trying to or ever wanting to. It just moved you in that direction. And so what do you do? Well, you're in the ocean, you just get up, you walk, and you move against the tide and against the current to get back to where you want to be. This world is broken. Jesus even promised in John chapter 16, before he left the planet, one of his final prayers that he gave, He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You can bet on it. Children die before they ever should. People get sick and they leave spouses behind. Relationships don't work. Jobs, pandemics happen. In John chapter 16, verse 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the same verse, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You live in a world that is going to try to push you like an ocean current where just fear unintentionally and anxiety and worry for the rest of your life are going to push you. But it is possible to move against the current. But it is not a one-time done fixed thing. It is a day by day, God, I surrender. I trust you. I know you're in control. I know that you're for me. I remember your promises. No matter what valley of the shadow I walk through, you are with me. You will comfort me, you will sustain me, and I can trust you. And when things get dark, I have the promise that I will spend all of eternity with you, and I'm gonna keep fighting against that current. And it is a day-by-day thing. And I wish there was an answer, and I wish there was a book that just said, hey, just do this one thing, you'll never be anxious again. That doesn't exist, that is a fantasy. But it is possible to decide, God, I'm gonna trust you. When life is not going how I want it to, I'm gonna trust you. I'm going to remember your word, your promises. This is why we harp on community so much around here, because sometimes in those moments where I'm overwhelmed with anxiety, I need people in my life that remind me, this is what's true. This is who God says you are. This is who God is. To help me push against that current, to walk and move in the direction of peace. And when I do, I move against the current of anxiety and experience a peace, not of this world, but of God. If you're in the room and you've never had a moment where you trusted in Jesus, you experiencing freedom from anxiety is really not possible because you should have a level of anxiety because you are gonna stand before God who is perfect, holy, and who has said abundantly clear in the scriptures, there is no one who is worthy to spend all of eternity with me based on how they behave, but what they believe. In other words, 
It is not whosoever behaves shall not perish, have eternal life. It is whosoever believes in what Jesus did on the cross shall not perish, but have eternal life. And you should be anxious if you've never trusted in him because you are headed to spend eternity apart from the God who loved you so much he gave his life for you, who doesn't expect you to do something for him. He gave his life and did something for you, but you have to receive it and accept it. And you will never experience peace because you don't have a relationship with the Prince of Peace, the Bible calls him. But for the rest of us, we can choose to trust in the midst of anxiety, to take all of that and track down our anxiety, to remember the promises of God, to understand worry is useless, to seek God's kingdom and surrender ours, and to take it one day at a time, which spells out trust. If you are in a place where you could use prayer, I'd love, you to pray, or I'd love to pray for you. You're walking through and you're anxious, and man, it is all over the room. And so if we bring the lights down, and everyone who's here, we're just gonna bow heads really quick. And if you will raise your hand, I'd love to just pray for you specifically, where it is real. The things that I'm saying, you feel, it hits different because of where you are right now. And you're not alone. God loves you. He is for you. And if that's where you're at, will you just raise a hand? I just wanna pray specifically over you. Father, I pray for these friends who my heart breaks at knowing the pain and the fear, the uncertainty, confusion. And I can only imagine how much more your heart, because you know each one of these hands, you know each one of the men and women right now walking through what they're walking through. You know every hair on their head. You love them far more than any person ever will. And so I pray that you would be more near to them and their awareness of your nearness would be greater than ever before. You would be more real in their life than fear, than anxiety, than worry, than depression, and that you would help them experience peace on a moment by moment, day by day basis. Thank you that you went to the cross and you gave your life so that we could experience peace for all of eternity and walk and experience increasing amounts of it in this life. Would this series be another addition to push and promote that in our hearts. We love you and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.